Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. And your Holy Spirit is in this room now, Lord, with us. And I pray that as not I speak, but your Spirit speaks this morning, that that same Spirit touches the hearts, opens our eyes, opens our ears to the words that you have for us this morning, Lord, that the words that would change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh this morning, Lord. So as we open your word today, Lord, as you have promised, it goes out in power. It will not return void. Lord, I pray for all of us, including myself, that we would hear those words specifically for us, specifically for myself today, Lord. Let your name be proclaimed. Let us exalt you now in your name. Give you all the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in the eighth week of our study, Sent to Make Disciples, as we look through the Gospel of John. Just again, a little bit of history on, John, on the Gospel of John. About 94% of the material that we find in the Gospel of John is new material. It's not, re, it's not something that's been repeated from either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And John, at this point is a very old man, and he sits down to write this gospel. And as I can attest to, as I get to be 62, things are different of what I place value on and what I see importance in than when I was younger. And the same thing has happened to John here. He's nearing the end of his life. He boils it all down. He, he doesn't give any of the extra stuff. He's just looking to teach the main thing and that is that God came here to earth in the form of Christ. So today we're going to take a look at, at God's sovereignty in that. And the, name of the, the title on our message is Sent to Show Off the Sovereign. But the question I want to ask you today, do you trust where the sovereign God sends you? And by that, I don't want you to get hung up on whether I'm talking about sending you to Costa Rica or sending you to Mexico, where God sends you. It may be through trials. It may be through testing. Are you trusting in the sovereign God through it all? So as I say, today we will cover the first 40 chapters of chapter, or first 40 verses of chapter six. Yeah, 40, 40 chapters. Oh, you guys, are, you guys are here for the night, right? Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, he details seven, what he calls signs, miracles. And we'll be taking a look at two of those today. But he also identifies seven I am statements. And we'll take a look at one of those today as well. So as you can see, we've got a lot of material. So I'm going to pray for our time in the Word, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I just pray that you would illuminate your Word this morning, Lord that you would speak through me, that you would, your spirit would pierce our hearts with your words this morning and change us, make us more and more in your image. For that is what we, you've left us here is to become more and more like you. And that is our goal today as well. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. Um, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you get to Acts, back up a book. Um, and we're going to start 
with verse 1. And as you are looking at your, your Bible for chapter 6, it probably has, and I'm going to try to pronounce this right, a pericope um, little title there. And it says, probably says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, I'm going to help you understand today that that's wrong. You can ignore that. It's, it's a lot larger number than that. You'll see that as we go through the scripture. But this is the only one of the miracles that is covered in all four Gospels. If you're taking notes, Matthew covers it in chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Mark covers it in chapter 6, verses 32 to 44. Luke addresses it in chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And of course, this morning, John's going to address it in verses 1 through 15. So, obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired all four men to write of this miracle. It must be a fairly important miracle, so let's take a look at it. Give you a little background. John, as I said, he wrote, he, he identifies seven signs in the Gospel of John. But he tells us in John 20, verses 30 to 31, what his whole purpose in these signs are. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the seven signs that he has written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to take a look at these signs, realizing that in the sovereignty of God, they're pointing back to Christ is God here on earth. So starting right there in, in verse 1, we're going to look at Jesus feeding the multitude. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large cloud was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And remember, John has just reminded us that he's done many more signs than what we're going to see in this book. And these people have been following Jesus and seeing many signs. It says that after this, we're simply referring to after the time period in chapter 5. We do not know, John doesn't tell us which feast they are celebrating in chapter 5. So this is anywhere from six months to a year, depending on whether it was the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths, or it was the Passover in, in verse five or chapter 5. So somewhere between six months and a year, these people have been seeing Jesus do miracles on the sick. And now there's this crowd following him. Picking up in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Christ is testing Philip here. He's saying, where are we going to get this to feed these people? And, and 200 
denarii is about eight months worth of wages. So he's saying eight months worth of wages, and these people would barely each get a little. So that's not going to be it. But he has no idea, but Christ already knows what he's going to do. And as anyone can, if you have the experience that I have when you're studying Scripture, you'll read Scripture again, the same Scripture, and you'll catch something else out of it that you didn't maybe catch the first time or another time. Same thing happened to me here. I, because the title of the message was Sovereignty of God, I'm tending to look through this with the sovereign lenses on. And I had never really paid attention to that, but when he's testing uh, Philip here, it's actually putting his sovereignty on display. He knows what he's going to do, but he's testing Philip. And we've seen that in Scripture before. Um, We see in, and it'll be part of your daily reading this week, we see in Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham with Isaac. And he goes up on the mountain, and he's about ready to slay his son. And the angel says no. And in God's sovereignty, what has he done? He has provided a ram for the sacrifice. And in the book of Job, we read through the accounts of Job and Job being tested. But in the end, in God's sovereignty, he knew he was not only going to Replace what Job had lost, but replace it plus. So just another glimpse into the sovereignty of God in in the word in just different places that he has has experienced that. And the other thing, back to our, our question of the day, I said, look at where he has sent you. And if you look, you'll see that you realize that actually Abraham and Job both kind of answered our question. They were trusting in God, through their trial, through their test, believing that he had it in control. So our question was, do we trust God in the sovereignty as he sends us? These two men display that for us. If, if you'll take out your connecting point, that's the back side of your, uh, if you're taking notes, it's the back side of the uh, note side. In the being in community section, it says, are you living a life that reflects trust in the sovereign God? Do people see you as trusting in God through the trials and testing of life? One of the best ways to know and not be self-deceived is by being in community with other believers who can speak truth into your life. Now for Job, that didn't necessarily work so well. His friends maybe didn't quite speak truth into his life. But this is going to be my little plug that if you're not already plugged into a core group, a men's study, a woman's study, somewhere where you can build up relationships with other believers. And as Proverbs 12:15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So I would encourage you that if you're not already, get into a group where you can get encouraged and you can have the wise person speak into your life. So let's pick up our account in chapter, or verse 8. One of his disciples, so Philip says, I've, you know, 200 denarii isn't going to feed these people even a little. Andrew's, I guess, maybe got a little more faith. 
he comes up and says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So even Andrew's having his doubts. You know, they just Remember, they just saw Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen uh, Jesus heal the royal uh, person's son. They've just seen Jesus heal the man at the pool. And they're still not quite catching on to his power and who he is. So Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And that's why your pericope said, if Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, there's actually 5,000 men. By the time we add women and children to that number, you're probably somewhere between 10, and some people say as much as 20,000 people. That's a lot of people to feed. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Philip said, we don't even have enough for him to get a little bit. Jesus is feeding them as much as they want. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and left by those who had eaten. So he has not only taken these five little bitty, and we're talking small barley loaves, and fed 10 to 20,000 people. They've got 12 basketfuls of scraps left over. So Jesus has, has multiplied that bread. So he, again, we're see, getting a glimpse of seeing his sovereignty and his power. But... As becomes the case, when the people saw, starting in verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet which is to come into the world. They missed it. They still didn't catch that this was, that Christ was God right there in front of them. They were looking at their material things. They were looking at being fed. They weren't looking at the spiritual they didn't recognize him as God. Instead, they take him to be a prophet. In fact, we'll see a little bit later, they compare him to Moses. They think he's just another great prophet. They've totally missed their need for a savior. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, the Jews withdrew, or Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here you are, he's fed these 10, 20,000 people. They have totally missed the spiritual side of this miracle. They've just know they've been fed. That feels good. They're under oppression at this time by the Romans. It's like, hey, here's our savior. He's going to take us out of bondage to, to Roman. He's going to you know, feed us. He's, gonna, he's our man. Totally, totally missing the point. So that's the, you know, that's our first miracle that we're looking at today, that, that he's fed 10, 20,000 people out of five barley loaves and two fish. So if we look at 
uh, in John, the chapter we're in, it just says that he went up to the mountain. But if we actually look at Matthew 14, in Matthew's account, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So we now see that he has sent the disciples on ahead. He's dismissed the crowd, this large crowd, and he's gone up to pray. Something that we take note of, he seems to pray a lot. And we should be a people of prayer and a church of prayer. So I'll put in another little plug for Wednesday night. Show up at corporate prayer and let's pray together. So when verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across to the sea of Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had yet to come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now they're in the Sea of Galilee. It's got mountains around it. The winds come down in the evening off the, over the mountains and down into the sea, and it becomes very, very rough. And that's what's happened here. And we've looked at this uh, before in Jesus walking on the water. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, when he said, it is I, he was saying, it is I am. We looked a couple weeks ago at all the different places in, in Scripture where Jesus identifies himself as I am. The, the disciples would have known he was referring and associating, calling himself God. So as, as Doug pointed out a couple of weeks ago, for those friends of yours that may say Jesus never claims to be God, this is another one of those places where he is claiming to be God. He says, I am. And because he says, I am, he tells them, do not be afraid. So they shouldn't be afraid of him. And again, if we look at Matthew's account for a little more of the detail on this, it tells us about Peter and what he did. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he, G, uh, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So here we see we've got you know, a boat full of 12 disciples rowing across, having a tough time getting across because of the wind. They've only made three or four miles. They see Jesus come walking up. And in the other accounts, it tells, some of us, it tells us that they think he's a ghost, you know, they're afraid. He comes up alongside of them, says, I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so Peter gets out of the boat, says, if it's you, Christ, call me and I'll come walking to you. What, what's the other 11 disciples doing? They've seen all the same miracles and everything else. They stay in the boat. 
at least Peter got out of the boat. We tend to, you know, talk about, well, Peter had a little faith because he took his eyes off Christ, put his eyes back on himself. When he did so, he started to sink. We try to, we kind of give Peter a hard time about that. But Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. Where were the other 11? Still sitting there. And what does Christ do when Peter starts to sink? Immediately reaches out his hand and takes Peter. Do you sense that in your life? When you're going through a trial, when you've taken your, when you've taken your eyes off of God, put them on yourself, and life starts to get a little rough, do you feel God reaching down, saying, I got you. Don't worry about it. Got you covered. That's what he did for Peter. That's what he'll do for us. And at that point, picking it up in verse 21, it says, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Pretty nice. Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately you're at the shore. Don't have to row all the rest of that. Jesus took care of it. So we've looked at these two signs, miracles, and John has told us he wrote about them so that we would believe, but that's not the real thing that Christ wanted to get to. He did those signs as miracles, as signs to point to his deity, but what he really wanted to do takes place now in verses 22 through 40. So on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. The other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, this is just a little side note because it caught my attention there. He's describing this place, and he could have said the place where they, they ate, the place where they got the food, the fish, bread. But he says, after the Lord had given thanks. So the next time you're sitting down to a meal, just think about that. He took the time to give thanks. And John even takes the time to point out a second time that he gave thanks, so... That's just a side note there. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're still out there trying to find him. They're still full of all the wrong heart reasons, but they're trying to find him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, now, Jesus, being Jesus, kind of ignores their question. <laughs> He's just going to take this as a teaching opportunity. They're asking, when did you get here? He's not concerned about that. He answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate fill of the loaves. So here he is telling these this crowd, even though you saw the miracle, and even though you saw miracles before that, that's not why you came. You're following me just because you ate, 
just because I took care of your hunger. So they are still missing the point. But in this point, how many times do we miss the signs? How many times do I miss the signs that are right in front of me? How many times do I not take note of nearly 40 years of marriage is a miracle? It's a blessing of God. When, and I've got six granddaughters and they're all precious gifts from from God, but little Violet, who happens to be here today, and many of you saw her this week, last weekend up at retreat, is another miracle that I'm reminded of every day. When she, when Rachel was just getting the ultrasound, they found numerous neurological problems, the biggest one of which is she, and I'll mispronounce the term so I won't use it, but she has no tissue connecting the right and the left half of her brains. They, at that time, didn't think she would live past infancy. Um, but God, as, as those of you that were at retreat and saw her, have seen she is a healthy, active, eight-year-old, just like any other eight-year-old, and God has just worked a miracle in her life. But do I see that all the time? Do I see the greatest miracle in this for me and the same miracle for any of you that are saved? Do I see the greatest miracle in my life that God took and saved a wretch like me? Sadly, <laughs> I confess that all too, all too often I, I, my prayers are about me, about material things, about, you know, these people, they, they weren't chasing him because they knew they needed him as a savior. They were chasing him because he'd eaten. Do I sometimes pray out to God, cry out to God, you know, for my own needs, my own wants? Yeah, all too, all too often. So Christ answers them, starting and picking it up in verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So here's Christ telling them, that bread you ate, that's just going to perish. Standing in front of you is the eternal bread. But... Again, they still miss the point. What did they answer? They said to him, what must, we do be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So here they are. They've missed the point. They think they've got to do works for their salvation. They don't get that it's a free gift of God. What, what works must we do? They're thinking that this eternal life that, that Jesus is talking about, God requires work of them. More so, they even think that if it did, they could do the works. We all know that not only does it not take works, we couldn't do it if we had to. Remember that Christ did it for us all at the cross. We cannot do it ourselves. 
So Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So we've whittled it all down. It's not the miracles that they've seen. It's not work that they must do. There's only one work they must do, and that's to believe. Believe in the one standing right in front of them at the time. But that's all that's required for us is to believe. And if you'll take your connecting point again, turn it over to the back side, in the engaging in the call, Jesus has made it clear that only wor- the only work that God requires is for us to believe in him whom he sent. However, as a believer... We are sent to do the good works that God has prepared for us. Ephesians 2, verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our good works. We don't need to do good works for our salvation. But because of our salvation, because of our love for Christ, we will do the good works that he has prepared for us. So they're still not getting it. So what do they say now? Starting in verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Are you kidding me? How many more signs do you want? They they were fed? They saw signs before that time. And and what are they asking for? A sign. What work do you perform? Again, Christ. So what work do you perform? And that's all because they've got the wrong connotation. They've got the wrong thought here. They're, They're thinking he's a prophet. So now they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, again, they're turning back to their Old Testament, what they know. We got bread. Moses fed us. Fed us bread all the time in the wilderness. But they're still seeking a sign. They're saying Moses fed the entire nation. You only fed 10 or 20,000 people. He fed the entire nation of Israel. So what are you going to do for us? Are you really greater than Moses is what they're asking. But again, Jesus isn't going to get caught up in the details of debating this point with Moses with them. He simply tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, the true bread is standing right there in front of them in the form of Jesus Christ. And they're turning their attention back to Moses and the wilderness. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's telling them, I've come down from heaven. I am, he's going to tell them bluntly in just a minute. He's the bread of life. But he's telling them, the father sent the bread. What do they say? They still are just not getting it. What do they say? Sir, give us this bread always. Kind of like when Chad taught a few weeks ago, the woman at the well, you know, in the first 
No. He says, drink this water and you'll thirst no more. And she wants this water because she's thinking of the material water. And they're thinking the material bread. Give us this bread. They still don't, haven't understood he's talking spiritually here. So finally, in verse 35, he gets to a point. He's tired of these people. They can't catch on. He's just going to lay it out there for them flat out. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's what it really comes down to. You know, we looked at the two miracles. We've, you know, talked about their unbelief. But what it really comes down to is Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And he very clearly said, I am, again, claiming his deity. He is the bread of life. So they say to him, but I said to you, or excuse me, Jesus speaking now in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus is making it very clear to them. He's, he is the bread of life. He's not come down here to do his own will, but he's come down here to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that Jesus would lose none of those of whom he gives him. Now, it's a message for another day in terms of the man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. But clearly, those that God has called and given to Christ, Christ will not lose one of them, but will raise them up on the last day. So, you know, as I say, there's this, this struggle that, we can't come to Christ except that Christ calls us and yet we have a responsibility. And he lays that out in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks up on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on that last day. So it's not about the miracles. It's not about being fed. It's not about having our material needs met. It's do we believe? Do we believe Christ was God in the flesh here on earth? Do we believe that when he went to the cross, he took our sins to the cross with him? I want to take a break from my notes here and just... You may be sitting there and, and you've heard what maybe to you is some nice stories about feeding a bunch of people with some bread and some fish or a nice story of Jesus walking on the water. And they're just stories to you because you haven't accepted Christ. You haven't believed 
So I want to invite you now, just where you are, that if you have not taken that step of believing in Christ as your Savior, just do that right where you're seated, seating now. And if you'd like to talk about that afterwards, Dan or myself will be up front. Or if today is that day that you now believe and you take communion, share that with the couple serving you communion. So let's pray and we'll <clears throat> go into communion. Go ahead and call the communion couples up front now. Heavenly Father, Lord, you lay out for us your deity in these scriptures. You lay out for us that you are the sovereign God. You had power over five loaves and two fish. You had power over the winds. You had power over the water. But all that power, Lord, what you really are trying to tell us is very simple. Believe, believe, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe he is the son of God. So Lord, I thank you for the message time today that maybe there is someone there that their heart of stone has been turned to a heart of flesh. That no longer are these stories of what you've done, but they see them as an account of your deity here on earth. And Lord, as we head into communion, may we be reminded your words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brother, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12. And as we take communion today, Lord, as we take this bread and this wine, Lord, it's grape juice that we use. It's just, Lord, but these elements, it's not in the elements, but they're simply the reminders. You are the bread of life. And those that believe in you hunger no more and will thirst no more. And in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I am also delivering to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. <clears throat> Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, as we take these elements today, may we proclaim you until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.